Welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. Hey, Andy. Hey. Uh, we, we should say right at the top of the show that this episode is going to contain Jeopardy spoilers. So if you have not watched Andy on Jeopardy and you wish to still do so and you don't want it to be spoiled, stop listening to this episode right now. Yeah, that's, that's true. Although it's very hard to watch Jeopardy if you weren't watching live. You would have had to DVR it, I believe. There's really no way... It sort of just disappears into the ether once it's aired. Does it really? Well, I think because it's syndicated as opposed to being... Yeah, you're not going to find it on, like, Hulu the next day. Nah, um, I didn't yeah. know that. So, um, all sorts of new things. Yeah, uh, yeah. So let's, let's bring our guest in, who also... Uh, yeah, is, should we bring in our guest? Our guest today is a filthy cheat. Who, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, no, is it? Uh, bizarre coincidence. Yeah, really. Because our guest is someone who Andy and I both worked with on a pilot about a few years ago and is a producer of comedy specials and TV shows and movies. Uh, And uh, also, you might know him from an episode of Jeopardy on which Andy also appeared yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's Charlie Fonville, everyone. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, hey, champ. Hey, hey, champ. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> not, not bad. <laughs> you were so, though. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. Yeah. I, what the craziest week of my life and the craziest day of my life? The day that we taped together. Right. That was it. Was pretty it's, insane. It's weird living the craziest week of your life two months after it happened. Yeah, and, and not not being able to tell anybody for those two months. Yeah, that's right. And blowing all of the winnings in the time. That's right. <laughs> You have $100,000 in credit card debt. (laughs) (laughs) Also, fun fact for for people who are considering going on game shows, I believe this is true in general, uh, you don't get paid for four months after the show airs. So on my tape day, I had to sign something. They said, okay, we'll get you the check in March. I'm like, March? That's six six months from now. And they said, yeah, welcome to game shows. So I did not know that. Are there going to be banks by March? Right. (laughs) Uh. Will ABC's money still be good? <laughs> right. So, again, if it was ABC, you'd be able to watch the show somewhere. Sony's money. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. right. Syndicated. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, what a thrill. We both got to be on with the legendary Alex Trebek. That is just an incredible thing. I still can't wrap my head around. Yeah, I mean, so lucky that we got in, got in there when we did. Um, and he was taping until, like, two weeks before he died. So, yeah. I mean, there's it's another several nice. months... It's amazing. It's just yeah. amazing. Do you remember? So uh, again, spoilers. I I won for four days in a row, and then Charlie beat me on the fifth day. But again, all five of those days happened in a five hour span on uh, September 9th. <laughs> That's right. Um, do you remember hearing things that he was saying to the director in between, like during commercial breaks? Did you guys from the audience hear? Um, I I could remember like them. Um, you know they would do pickups and it's like i need to do that again but i didn't hear much um you know chatter yeah just i remember just like very muted conversations with the either director or stage manager um saying that you know if you don't want to do this we don't have to do this and he's just like soldiering on and i was like what a, what a champ he was yeah just i mean you could see him like he was like leaning up against the podium when he was standing um a few times which uh- I get I wasn't there for the taping day and didn't see any of this. I only saw the broadcast version. What a ludicrous pro because he didn't even vaguely look ill on the yeah. recording. 
Yeah. It's it's really incredible. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he went backstage and just collapsed after every episode. Yeah. I mean, I am not sick, and by the end of my day, which it started at 4 a.m. that day, at, after the fifth episode where Charlie ousted me, uh, I, <laughs> I, was, I was beat. I went straight home and went to sleep. Like That was the most draining day I've had in forever, and I am um, relatively healthy. Yeah, I, I like had like a massive adrenaline dump, and then I just I got home, and you know my wife obviously wanted to hear everything about it, and I just like wanted to sit and like stare at a blank wall. So, yeah, so, I yeah, did it's good, really good, Texas. good. Bye, night. <laughs> now, Matt, do you feel bad that you weren't able to get on? <laughs> <laughs> I I was watching this like I. You know, whenever you watch any game show, you watch sort of with a. I think most it would be weird if you didn't watch with half an eye to how would I do if I were in the same position. Right. And I think there are so many gaps in my knowledge by not growing up in America, and also, <laughs> and also just Jeopardy has its own sort of knowledge base and recur. I hadn't realized how sort of um, how how thematic the questions are, like how many themes come round again and again, and how much you can actually gain by just studying the archive of past Jeopardy questions. Oh, yeah. So, I, I was studying. That's what I was doing for most of my studying. And my parents were like, why are you uh, doing this? They're not going to reuse a question. Uh, and then as we were, we studied, I helped, they were helping me study something. And then we watched the one that aired that night. And the same, like the meat of a question came up again in a different format. And they were like, oh, whoa. I was like, yeah, it's like, it's not impossible that you'll study something from a past show that will get used it just won't be that wording yeah it's more like it, it kind of is like a sort of here's the syllabus it's like doing exams where like this is the syllabus and you will be graded on this syllabus you won't have an exact question that you had beforehand but you know we want to find out that you've got the same knowledge in different ways right right the example i've given when talking to people about this is you, you don't have to give deep knowledge for like rhyme of the ancient mariner you just have to know albatross uh, Coleridge and water, water everywhere. And right. th- that's just, that's, that's it, you know? Well, so I want, because this is at least meant to be a science podcast, I want to talk a bit about the the strategies of Jeopardy because it gets quite into game theory and quite sort of gambling theory heavy. Um, and also just reaction time. That's, that's oh. as far as I can tell, just the biggest aspect of Jeopardy is just, so... Uh, For the people who aren't familiar with the show, which will be many people who didn't grow up in North America, firstly, the first thing you have to realize is, I think most people know the sort of gimmick of the show, which is that you have to give the answer in the form of a question. It gives you the clue, and then you have to say, like, what is, or who is, or whatever. Um, But you can't buzz in until the question is finished, and when the question is finished, it's decided by a producer off-camera who just presses a button to sort of release the buzzers, and the first person to buzz in at that moment gets the clue. But if you buzz in a fraction earlier, then your buzzer is locked out for a beat. So it's a huge amount about getting that timing right. And you aren't signified in any way that you came in early. Right. You don't know whether you're early or late. You just know, like, so So lights. Am I right to think, like, in the, the people at home can't see this, but you can see lights light up next to the question board. And the second they go up, you can press the button. Yeah, that's, that's right. correct. Yeah. But Speaking also, it's just the reaction time of that is sufficiently slow that you're probably better off trying to predict when it'll happen so you come in exactly when the lights go on rather than a beat later. I was going to ask you, Charlie, what your strategy was vis-a-vis that. Yeah, so about um, a few minutes into that first game, 
or the game that we played, um, I kind of locked into the strategy of staring. Like once I read the question before he had finished, um, I stared at the side of the the board on the big board. You can't see there. There's two strips of lights that light up. I just stared at one point on that board and waited. And as soon as it happened, I pressed. Um, oh, interesting. Mm. I I didn't know if you. Okay, I thought maybe you would learn something from sitting because they, they have no audience because of COVID. So the audience is the other players who will be on that week. And I was wondering if sitting in the audience for four games gave you any insight in getting to see both those lights and getting to see what players are doing to see kind of which which people are. It definitely helped. I, it, so the the lockout screen was right in front of me, but it was a little far away for me to really see what happened. So I and I didn't know what the colors meant, but like you know, yellow boxes would pop up over people, and I didn't know if that meant they'd been locked out or if they were oh, late or what. Interesting. Um, but it did help me a ton in terms of like just getting settled into the groove of how the you know the episode taping went. Okay. Um, and kind of getting a feel for you know here are the clues that they drop into the question. Um, and how they're phrased and all that. Yeah. Okay. So light really is the way to go. Because I was starting to think maybe it's best to anticipate earlier than the light because, you know, there'd be a built-in lag time of your reaction to it. So if you can anticipate when that producer actually presses their button and do it at the same time, like maybe even ahead of the light. Right. You, you were so in command. I don't know if you look at There's so many... Uh, Jeopardy, I feel like it's kind of like baseball in terms of the nerdery that it brings out in, in statistics-minded people. Oh, I hadn't but, even realized the extent. Sorry, go, finish your thought, but yeah, I want the, to talk about that in a second. S- uh, on the subreddit for Jeopardy and also on tons of Jeopardy fan forums, you'll see people instantly calculating everyone's Coriot scores, which are the scores that don't take into account betting on du- daily doubles, uh, the percentage that you were the first in on. And Charlie, you were 50% of the questions yesterday. You were in first on 24% I was. So I just had no chance. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I Did you have this experience where you don't remember the questions and you don't know how you knew that answer? Oh, I was watching at home and I answered some incorrectly that I answered correctly in the studio. <laughs> I was like, how did I unlearn that in two months? <laughs> well, I, like, I didn't remember ancient history, which is a category I did really well in. Um, I didn't remember that category at all. And then there was a question about Assyrians, which I don't know anything about Assyrians, but I knew. Like, yeah, that was the, the alphabetically first thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think I did well in that category. There was some run of like eight questions in a row that I was mad because I, I knew I just couldn't get in on. And then I was like, well, this isn't going my way today <laughs> or this late in the day. Um, I, the, yeah, the daily doubles were, were huge. That last daily double was the big help. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that was an interesting thing throughout my run. Uh, there were two games that I definitely should have lost. Um, Monday and Wednesday, those two players were far superior on trivia and on buzzer timing. And then when they would get daily doubles, they just wouldn't make big bets. Like, um, I think right. I think John, the Marine from Monday, never bet more than two thousand dollars. And I just, as I talked about last week in the podcast. From listening to James Holtzauer talk about it, like that's that's just like almost free money because those questions aren't harder than the rest. Chances are you know them. You got to go big, you know. Well, I was so shocked that that guy Tuon was that his name? Um, well, that, was a, that was a great bet. Yeah, yeah. When he bet four hundred dollars or whatever. No, no, he, he bet sixty. He, bet, he did a full daily double with sixty two hundred dollars. Oh no! Somebody bet four hundred dollars. Oh, that was his final Jeopardy. That's that was what his it was. Final- uh, yeah, I think that he had good reason for that. So, because I I got into reading the forums and everything, and like you said, it, it's the Jeopardy is unique amongst American game shows in that it is like baseball. There are there, it sort of inspires such sort of devotion and nerdery and sort of 
deep uh, analysis and you know it's like it's like a little cult unto itself uh, like almost anyone who's on it as a cont- as a contestant has also been a fan of it for years if not decades so I, I i'd like to talk a bit about the theory of gambling we should explain how the game works for people who don't know it um there are, there are three correct me if i get something wrong or if you think i've missed out some important information but there are three rounds in jeopardy there's jeopardy double jeopardy and final jeopardy and in the first round there's a board with is six categories each category has five questions increasing in money value and difficulty and if you get a question right, you get control to pick the next clue. And somewhere hidden on the board as well is a daily double, which you get to entirely to yourself if you land on it. And you get to choose how much of your money you're willing to gamble up to all of it, which is a true double. Uh, and then the second round is exactly the same as the first, but the clues are worth twice as much. And there are two hidden daily doubles. And then the final round, Final Jeopardy, you get told the category before the commercial break. You get to lock in how much you're willing to gamble on it. And then all three contestants get the same clue. They write down their answer. And depending whether or not they get it, they either double the amount they gambled or they lose the amount they gambled. So So there are sort of three strategy aspects to the game, really. The, there's where you pick on the board, your sort of strategy for which clues you choose in which order how much you gamble on a daily double and then how much you gamble on the final jeopardy. Right, right. And and each of those have sort of, have a certain amount of mathematics and probability and game theory behind it. There's also the the distribution of where daily doubles usually happened, which someone has done that statistical analysis. So you can look at like a a shaded uh, image of of the most freak, a heat map of where they, and they show up generally in the second through fourth rows and not so much in the first or fifth. So you can use that to your advantage also if you want to try to get a bunch of money first from the bottom row, then go hunting for a way to double that with daily doubles. Right, because one of the things James Holzhauer did, which he was he was one of the three big winners in Jeopardy history, but he's also, he's not the longest or the overall cash total winner, but he is the fastest winner. He he has something like, like if you look at the top 10 highest scoring episodes, he's got the entire leaderboard now, hasn't he? Or, oh, he's got like, the it's... entire top 30. So before he started, the biggest single game day was like 75,000. I think that was um, Roger, I forgot his last name. Um, but in his entire, I don't know, 20 or 30 game run, his average was higher than the previous single game total. So he had some I, I days... Think, by the way, that... I, I read up of this yesterday. I think in the end, he, he was a just below like oh, okay. just missed out but it was absurd in, in the area right yeah but, yeah he had he had a game or two that were like 150 or 160,000 in a single game just because that's yeah. unbelievable but, I, but when you look at his stats you know compared to something like ken jennings who is the longest ever winner his number of correct questions was approximately the same if not lower than ken jennings's number of correct questions but his gambling strategy was so much more aggressive and his clue picking strategy was so much more aggressive right right his average amount per clue and his average amount per game was so much higher so he he did two things like firstly when he started the game he went straight for the highest value clues reasoning that he's the one who's experienced in the game the other two people are new so he's got an advantage of them at the beginning so he should try and rack up as much money and also to try and build as much money as possible so that when he hit the double he had enough to gamp he had a large amount to gamble and yeah. then, he, like you said, he gambled very aggressively. 
Yeah, it's funny. I, without spoiling anything for my second taping day, um, <laughs> a bunch of like the younger guys that were there were like, "I'm going. I'm James in it all the way. I'm betting everything all the time." Uh, <laughs> in like the, also in, pointing like, the, out that James has yeah. extremely good knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, and that's the thing. Like, you have to know all that stuff as well. Like, it's not just aggressiveness. Yeah, I also there's a video online of he, he was on the American version of the Chase, which is a, originally a British game show, where he also has the highest ever score. Oh really? Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's worth watching. Where the the chase, like in the cash builder round, he gets four questions more correct than anyone had previously done, just by his sheer speed and accuracy. Yeah, that's not about yeah. betting strategy. That's about just knowing a lot of trivia. So yeah, everyone yeah. thinks it's just because he's a gambler. It's like, well, no, you also have to be a trivia obsessive. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's a and, and trivia speed as well because it's so much about, like you say, the the knowledge base for Jeopardy is not very deep you don't need to you you don't need to know like the seventh biggest river in uh uh malaysia or whatever you you just need to know like the biggest but you need to get it really quickly right right yeah and also yeah it's like as with final jeopardy it's kind of a if you either know it or you don't like there's not a lot of um there's no wiggle room there although final jeopardy they normally give you a bit of a a toe holes like they they just normally there's often something in the wording of the question that sort of pushes you towards the answer i feel like in most difficult questions in the game in general they try to give you two ends to it so like the hardest Je- final jeopardy that i almost that i only wrote down at the la- literally the last second was the one about um let me see if i can just bring it up quickly it was this island country was named for a 16th century spanish king whose name comes from the greek for lover of horses and uh, so you could come at that from knowing um, an island country that has, a, you know, big Spanish influence and a former Spanish king. Um, or you could come at it from just going with the roots of those two words. So I was like, well, horses, I know that's hippo, like hippopotamus means water horse, hippodrome is where they run. And philo or phil is love. So I was like, what? Is there an island country that starts with hip, hip, what? And then I was like, is there one that starts with phil? I was like, well, Philippines, but that's from Philip, and that couldn't... I was like, oh, wait, I guess the name Philip means loves horses, which I never knew until hmm. uh, on the, in that moment in Final Jeopardy. And then uh, Deanna, who was in the lead, she had just written down hip and, and stopped, and I only came up with it at the very last second, and that's the only reason I, I passed her. She was definitely playing better all day up until that point. Well, well can we also talk about... Because that's the episode where... That's the episode that is the most indicative of the gambling theory well that yeah there there was a bit of debate online about when when we first saw your bet so this was one where you went in in second place deanna had a decent lead over you and the other contestants and uh you you gambled an amount uh, that when it doubled up it left you about 300 or 400 dollars short of what deanna was on so we were watching it as a group we were watching it you know, we were sort of watching it and also talking over Zoom. And at first we were like, why did he gamble that amount? Because you it wasn't enough to overtake the lead. And then and she if, got it wrong, with, so she dropped below you. Right. So let's talk score. about what your logic was on that gamble. Because I, I do now think you were correct on that gamble. And reading on the subreddit, someone sort of went into some detail explaining what was going on with your thought process. And I now, I concur. Yeah, well, there there are funny. It's it, there are um, on the Jeopardy fan archive page. You can type in three three scores. It will give you the optimal strategy for each of those people playing it. Um, let me see if I can find on the subreddit what. Uh, 
Well, okay. In short, my thinking was, so she had 17,800. I had 12,600. Kevin had 7,900. I just know that she knows not to leave me any opportunity to pass her in this scenario where both of us get it correct. So no matter what, she has to bet so that if she wins, she has $1 more than twice my score. I just couldn't imagine. She didn't have to do that. Because she could, she could have bet zero and gambled on on me having this strategy. I'm about to explain, but this strategy took me so long that I almost delayed. Like, you, you, it turns out there isn't a time cap on on placing your wager. It happens during the commercial break, and they give you as much time as you want, and you have to step back from the podium for a bit, do some writing to figure it out before you step up and write it on the thing. Um, and I stepped up and back three different times because I kept second guessing myself. So she could have thought through all that I thought through, and then went with a zero bet, uh, but it would have been risky. So I'm assuming she's going to bet. Um, so twice my score is 25,200. 25, oh my God. So she's going to bet um, at least, uh, what is that, 7,300 or so to get over that. So Which she did. I think she bet right. something like 7,600 or something. She bet what they, oh yeah, here, I'm looking at the wagering suggestions um, Deanna, there's, the only option is wager 7401 to cover Andy. So she's going to do that. So in the scenario where she wins, I have no chance of winning. Um, but within that scenario, I want to cover Kevin if possible so that I... So two, second place gets 2,000. Third place gets 1,000. Um, given how Deanna was playing that whole day, I assume she's getting it right and we're just fighting for that extra $1,000. So I might as well optimize the scenarios in which she wins um, so I bet, but also you might, you might as well sort of optimize the scenarios in which she loses. Like the, the, well, the, the yeah. basic sort of, no matter is- what, no matter what, I have to bet enough that if she loses, you subtract 7401 from her 178, I have to be above that. I have to be above, uh, yeah. 11,399. But, um, but, but the, the fundamental thing underneath it is what you said a, a minute ago, which is that if she gets the question right, you're pretty much screwed. Like you, you, you have no but, chance of winning if she gets it right. So you should, you should optimize your strategy based on the various scenarios where she gets it wrong. And no, those are more no. Different. I'm saying I was, I was, uh, if I was really optimizing the scenarios for when she was getting it wrong, if I was assuming she's getting it wrong, I would have just bet everything to try to optimize my winnings. I was like, she's getting it right. So really, I'm hedging my bets to get that extra thousand dollars because uh, the way I bet. It, it made it so that if I lost, I would still have above Kevin's wager if he bet nothing. So I would be, have the extra $1,000 from that. Um, if both Kevin and I got it wrong, I'd be above him and get the extra $1,000. If both Kevin and I got it right, I'd be above him and get the extra $1,000. If Deanna got it wrong and I got it right, um, Kev, I would win. And Kevin uh couldn't catch me by doubling his score let me see if that's actually true seven seventeen two seventy nine yeah so i'm also above if i get it right i'm above um what deanna will definitely get to if she gets it wrong and i'm above twice kevin's score um and yeah it worked out i mean in retrospect yeah i knew the question or the answer whatever the clue so i should have um wagered everything but there's no way of knowing that in advance and yeah you don't you have to lock in your bet before you see the question obviously yeah and then if you go to this actual fan archive thing what it says is andy you ought to cover 
You ought to wager to cover Kevin, but since you cannot win on a triple stumper, if you do so, you should choose between wagering zero and maximizing your winnings by betting all 12,600. You are in a thing called Stratton's Dilemma, calling for a wager of more than 3,200 to cut out, to shut out Kevin or less than 2,200, risking the possibility of being passed from behind by Kevin. Go with the smaller bet if you believe a triple stumper is more likely than a singleton miss by Deanna. This is all stuff you're supposed to, like, I don't know, have in your head. (laughs) So then if you go deeper in that, Stratton's Dilemma is is the wagering scenario that exists when the minimum amount that the second-place player needs to wager to cover the third-place player's doubled score exceeds the maximum wager suggested by the two-thirds rule. There's so much, like, the people get into this stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, the two-thirds rule is the idea that if you're behind, you should bet. Two-thirds rule. A trailing player with a score at least two-thirds the score of the leading player going into final jeopardy should wager between zero and three times their own score minus two times the leader's score, according to the two-thirds. God. But I mean, imagine, you you don't have any cheat sheets, so like they're expecting you to somehow just have all these strategies. But Charlie, you also, the day you beat me yesterday, um, you said you also were like hemming and hawing about your bet. What was your scenario there? I was at hemming. I just like, I knew because you had what, 14,000 something? Let me see. I think that's about right. Um, basically, if you had doubled and I had missed it, you would have won. So I, I figured you had to be aggressive. Yeah, I had um, 14,000. You had 25,000. So I was like, well, I mean, I could bet, you know, whatever it was. Um, one dollar more than 3,001. Yeah, and that would have taken it over. But I... I don't know anything about. I knew three things about musical theater, and that was one of them. Uh, so it's like <laughs> I might as well um, try and get a little bit more money without trying to go um, completely bankrupt if I missed it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was a good. I mean, like, that and was... you know, what? and I stepped up there, and I was just like, I was doing the math a, a thousand times in my head, and I, I wrote it down. I was like, okay, I think that's right. And then when you got it right, I was like, oh sh, oh, I messed up the math, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't. <laughs> And the question, it turned out to be, I think it's a pretty common, it's adjacent to a pretty common trivia night question, which is like, what's the book upon which Cats the Musical is based? Yeah. So the question was actually, the word practical was dropped from the title of this hit musical not long before it premiered in 1981 in London's West End. And that... Um, and I had fallen down at the beginning of, of lockdown. I had fallen down uh, a cat's rabbit hole because I watched um, the movie with some with some friends on Zoom and just completely got in my head about like why this had happened, uh, <laughs> why the movie had happened. Um, uh, so I read all about it uh, and I still don't have any clarity about yeah. why it happened. I, I still haven't seen the movie. I, I got to check it out. It's so bizarre. Uh, but. It, uh, but if you're wondering about your strategy vis-a-vis the wagering calculator on the J Archive, um, basically anything between 3001 to cover double mine, but no more than 69.99 so that you wouldn't get within the striking range of twice Rhonda's score. So you were in that window. Right. Yeah. And uh, you got 30 grand. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it didn't feel like I had that much. <laughs> um, I, it, it's still like, though, your strategy with that game that we were just talking about the really complicated one where you're in stratton's dilemma if she had if she had managed to think through your strategy and realize that's what you were doing she could then have bet zero and screwed you anyway right but mine wasn't i mean there's no way of really saying what an optimal strategy is but these are just sort of you know it's not like some game theory things have actual correct optimal things but like the, the unknowns of, of the actual question knowledge and other things like it's just yeah so somebody else on reddit gave a, a lengthy defense of my wagering that was probably 
more detailed and had covered more things than I even thought through. But then other people were like, well, no, but you could also, yeah, she could have done that. That would have been highly risky. And if I had won by doubling my score, she would have probably uh, kicked herself. I don't know. Yeah. It's possible she could have won with a bet of zero in this scenario, but. But she wasn't to know unless she was to look over your podium and watch you writing it down. Right. (laughs) You know, it's almost like um, that dilemma about the like uh, the different colored hats on the three people's heads and all you can see is other two people's hats. Right. And it's the length of the length of once enough time passes, the time itself is what tells you what the answer is. So maybe the fact that I went back and forth so many times could have told her I was doing some complicated strategy and then... If you were playing to... a really good poker player, they might have seen through your... They might have cut through you. Right. And it sort of probably becomes Princess, Princess Bride kind of stuff where you're just right. reversing the eye of Canaan. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why the show's been so popular for 80 years or however long it's been on. Like, Final Jeopardy is super exciting and you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah if it, you have... it is a sort of heads-up poker game at the end, or, or a three-way poker game, depending on the situation. Yeah. yeah. Man, so that was, uh, was a crazy week. Uh, have you heard from a ton of uh, people from your childhood and things? John? God, my phone almost melted last <laughs> yeah. night. Uh, and because, you know, it's I'm from Texas, and I know people on the East Coast, too. And, I, like, it was just from, like, 2 o'clock on, I would get it in waves every 45 minutes. Uh, um, yeah, I got for people I hadn't talked to in 25 years were, like, emailing me. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's it so fun to hear. I had yeah, a guy from my first grade class back in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, found me, and yeah, it's um, yeah, and like people are calling my mom and dad. It's uh, back in my hometown. It's uh, it's really cool. Are your are your aunts and uncles also telling you, you that you should be the next host of Jeopardy? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten that yet. Uh, it's 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 sort of the same thing when you hope for Thanksgiving and someone's like you should be on Saturday Night yeah, Live. Exactly. Like, oh, I didn't think of that. I should just go be on Saturday yeah. Night Live. Yeah. I'll text Lauren right now. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of that. I, I have not gotten that yet. I'm sure if I were traveling for Thanksgiving, I, I would be getting. Uh, you should just keep being on the show. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just do Did that. Just do that, that professionally. Yeah, it's so funny. God, what else is? Uh, it's fun to hear from people who you didn't know. Like people that you're a fan of, and you're like, well, of course, I guess it's a pretty popular show. But like my friend Albert, his dad uh, played Dobie Gillis on the Many Loves of Dobie Gillis back in the fifties. Um, I shouldn't say f- name dropping, whatever. A guy I've taken guitar lessons from, who I'm a big fan of, his dad is Dobie Gillis, and he was messaging me and saying he and his dad were watching it. And I'm like, wait, Dobie Gillis saw me. Oh, that's Jeopardy. really funny. I. <laughs> yeah, I, my favorite email I got yesterday was from my accountant. The subject uh, line was just WTF. Uh, <laughs> Wait, my accountant, my account, two of my accountants emailed me. <laughs> That's really funny. Which, who's your accountant? Can we say on the podcast? His name is Mark Schwartz with oh. Sachs Roth something, something, something. Oh, different, different from the two. I have an Oregon, a former mm. Oregon accountant and an LA accountant who emailed me. <laughs> That's, That's so really funny. funny. <laughs> it's catnip for uh, accountants and, uh, and aunts. Well, That's pretty, right. Yeah, and you also got a Patton Oswalt shout out, Andy, because he came up as a clue. Oh yeah, that was really fun. I forgot about that. Yeah, on, on the third, I don't know, on one of the games, they asked the voice of Remy on Ratatouille, and I, I got got to say that and sort of laughed. And then in my interview with Alex, I mentioned because he asked about Bridgetown. Yeah, you, said, you sort of have to give like a bunch of different interview options, and they just happened to land on the Bridgetown one on the episode that had the Patton Oswalt clue. Yeah, so that was fun. Yeah. So I got to say he was in the first and the last year of uh, of Bridgetown. And like I, I wasn't around for the first two or three Bridgetowns, but am I right in thinking that 
like Patton was pretty instrumental in getting Bridgetown off the ground in the first place. Oh, if I had uh, had the time to talk about all that. Yeah, I mean, he... So then he tweeted a video of me saying that and said, you're welcome. And I was like, well, literally, I do have you to thank. I wouldn't be in L.A. in the industry, probably not on Jeopardy, were it not for 12 years ago, Patton volunteering to do the first year of Bridgetown for free. His show then selling out, allowing the first year to at least break even so I didn't lose five or ten grand, which allowed the festival to continue, which is what all of my career since then has, has come out of. So, yeah, I owe him uh, everything. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. <laughs> very funny it came full circle then also i made the mistake of quoting weird owls i lost on jeopardy on the episode of jeopardy that i lost that was the, <laughs> the first thing i said yesterday was potpourri came up and i was just thinking i took potpourri for 100 but 100 isn't even on the board anymore where at 84 100 was the highest value now it's 200 so i was like i wish i could say i took potpourri for 100 like weird owl but i'll take 200 Oh, so 84, only, 100 was the higher. I thought it had just doubled, so it went up to 100 on the original board. Well, Weird Al's was based on the Art Fleming years, because that album came out six months before Alex started the reboot in 84. So maybe in the 70s, Art Fleming's version was like 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 or something. That would know. make sense. Um, uh, the only I remember the only clue I really remember from that day, uh, <laughs> clearly the games I were playing, I was uh, in my sheet seat trying not to shout barney miller uh, uh when you get when nobody knew it <laughs> yeah the, the reddit was mad about that but uh just didn't watch enough of that <laughs> if it's not fish or abe vagoda i don't know I don't right know, yeah. um but uh congrats again charlie it was so much fun to uh to get to hand yeah thank, and the... yeah likewise it was so cool that we got to do that and uh uh, yeah, because we ran into each other at the COVID test. Right, right. They, uh, the producers panicked when we started talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought for sure they were going to um, make an alternate go on that day. Yeah, it's weird they didn't. Yeah. Um, well, like you, I'll take... you, everything was above board though. They knew that you two knew each other. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we signed stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he was in the audience all day, and like when we the, when the day starts, that S and P lawyer randomly selects which of the two contestants are going to start the day. And I was like, oh, it'd be funny if one of us ran the table all day and another one can't be on the show today. Yeah. And that's what happened. But then by, by the end of the day, I think they probably just didn't want to have to quickly tell an alternate they're now a regular. And they thought, let's just put them up because we, I don't know, we seem trustworthy. Is that why they did it? I don't know. Well, I guess so, also, yeah. Like, you're, you're clearly, you can't really, cl- I mean, I, there's not much collusion you could do as two people on the show together. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. You, you, you both want is. to win. You both want to, you both want to beat each other. And it's not like a team game where you can the two of you could gang up on uh, yeah the i guess how could two people collude if they wanted to i mean i guess all you could do is have a pact to share your winnings at the end but then you if you answer incorrectly it doesn't suddenly give the points to charlie it just opens the question back up to someone else right. so yeah it's, and it's you couldn't like you control could someone yeah you can't knock them out to help your friend and also right. and also because the person who wins gets to then stay on and potentially rack up a huge amount of money there's there's no benefit to sort of giving the game over to another person yeah yeah right <laughs> But I, were you at all worried, Charlie, about just being in the in? Also, we talked about how COVID has made them cast more from Southern California. Right? Were, were you worried about um, in your in your job in your job description or in your stories, like downplaying your work in TV so people at home don't think this is all some kind of crazy inside job? Or uh, no, I didn't really think about that. I uh, honestly talking about myself made me more nervous than the game. Uh, so <laughs> I, um, yeah, I didn't I didn't have that many interesting like. TV stories on my initial sheet. Um, but I guess that's a good point. 
it is funny how often, though, I think these days a lot of people are their their stories are about how they have a podcast. Uh, so that's right. <laughs> you also have a podcast. So we should tell our listeners about about what your podcast is. Can I say the name of it on this oh, podcast? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Also, if we didn't mention it before, we couldn't plug things by name on Jeopardy, which is an interesting twist. So, like when he asked me about what I write, I was like, "Oh, I can't name any of the shows I've written for. I don't know how to answer this quickly." But yeah, you couldn't name. I've noticed we've had some more followers on the Probably Science Twitter account since you turned up on the show, so hey, new followers. But you you weren't allowed to specifically name Probably Science. You just were allowed right. to say Andy Woods Comedy and Science Podcast. Yeah, right. right. Um, if I had had my wits about me, I would have described my podcast thusly. Um, my podcast is called Unremembered Hollywood. Um, it is a fictional, scripted um, collection of old Hollywood stories um, that are hopefully funny. That's yeah. When you said your story, I was like, "Oh, it's interesting." There was a Nazi who became an actor, and you're like, "Oh no, yeah, this is yeah, fiction. yeah." Was, uh, <laughs> I'm glad I got to say Alex, a Nazi to Alex Trebek. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. Unremembered Hollywood. I will give it a listen. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a little dormant for a while, but uh, I'm glad he picked it. Yeah. Also, I was watching um, Amazon Prime the other day, and I clicked on uh, Gary Busey, Pet Judge, which was delightful. And I was pleased to see you as a producer. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. <laughs> that old chestnut. So um, funny. Yeah. That was a wild experience. Uh, and uh, he you have, was... You have produced a bizarre selection of things over the years. It's really true. I mean, we did that pilot together, which was a like a comedy roast battle with uh, Ken Jeong yeah, and, for, and, Dave Foley. and Dave Foley for Spike yeah. TV. Um, little tip for anyone who's thinking about entering the uh, entertainment industry. A good idea is not to make a pilot for a TV network that stops existing two months after. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Like, I forgot about that. Like, I've had it before where... You know, you have a project that's maybe going to go, maybe not going to go, and then the executive who commissions it leaves the company, either willingly or unwillingly, and then you're like, well, okay, the new exec is just not going to want to take on this product project. I've never had the entire network be disbanded right. by a competition. <laughs> I did a pilot a couple years ago. Um, it was for TBS, and... Um, you know, our first meeting, there were a bunch of TBS executives. And then the second meeting, there was another guy. And they're like, oh, this is Trevor. He's start or whatever his name was. He's starting here. So he just wanted to learn the ropes. And then our third meeting, Trevor was the head of development <laughs> and in charge of our show uh, and did not like our show. So we didn't uh, we didn't get to go. Um, yeah, it's a super weird, uh, super weird thing when the execs get fired in the middle of projects. And it's also super weird when the networks close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it still a thing? Is it still Paramount? I think so. Isn't that where Lip Sync Battle lives and dominates? I don't know. Is that not the same? Let's see. Paramount Network. I still have our fingers crossed for our show, guys. You never <laughs> well, know. I, I did tweet. I think it's okay. I hope it's okay that I tweeted a link to the Vimeo of it. It was it was Googleable, so I figured it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to watch that pilot for, with Ken Jong and Dave Foley, oh, it's, I didn't it's pretty even know funny. it was online. I didn't know you could find it. Yeah, yeah. You could hear my laugh of a peppered. Very way too liberally throughout it, uh, if you know what my laugh sounds like. <laughs> I ran into Dave, I don't know, back in earlier this year, and he said, uh, I still don't know why they picked me to do that, uh, being Canadian and not wanting to insult anybody. Oh, I, good point, yeah. Uh, I know why they picked him, and it's because Ken really likes Dave, and Ken was one of the EPs on it. And it was just, right. Ken Jong was one of the people who helped get the show or the pilot commission in the first place, and then he's... Dave is on his sitcom or was right. on his sitcom and 
Ken's like, I really like Dave. Can we just have Dave on the show? Because he's very funny. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's why he was on it. Because yeah. uh, like, he's yeah. Dave Foley. He's a kid in the hall and all yeah, that. The, the two nicest guys. But yeah, yeah, they were very nice. But also just very funny. Like Dave. Yeah. I mean, they're both very funny. Definitely. So, uh, uh, listeners who are new to the podcast, we don't usually spend 45 minutes talking about game shows. This is sort of an anomaly. Uh, yeah. You- <laughs> we normally start... So, so before, we, before we start the episode, we like to ask our guests, what, what, if anything, is your background in science? And that has ranged between uh, classes you liked or hated as a kid to I used to blow stuff up in the woods with my friends. Um, I was um, I was a mediocre biology and chemistry student in college. Um I really, I've always liked archaeology, um, if that counts. I say it does. Um, I like astronomy a lot. Um, all that stuff's super interesting, and I cannot get enough of new species being discovered. Oh, interesting! Uh, the year-end, um, the year-end wrap-ups of all the new, the new things in the world, or the things that they've discovered in the world. I just wait. Is that there... and local that local news bloopers? My is, two big year-end hobbies. Is there is there like is there like some annual event at which people drop all the new all the new species? Well, it's always like National Geographic will do a big year-end story, and like if there's a big one, they'll drop it. You know, you know throughout the year. But uh, there's usually a, a slideshow of twenty or so new things. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I, super into that. I assume if it's a mammal, it leads. Like it's sort of a <laughs> if it bleeds, it leads. Right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and there's always sorts of they they put the mushrooms in there, but some of the mushrooms are pretty interesting. Okay, yeah, are there are there? Uh, here's a thing I should know as a science podcast host: are, are we pretty much uh, done with finding new mammals? Is that a small enough group that that doesn't really come up? I don't up? think we're even close to done. Oh, really? Yeah, no. I, there's always like they like find a weird lemur in in Madagascar, oh, or, okay. uh, or in Papua New Guinea. Um, so those places are you know largely still. On the ground, not not that um, explored. Okay, for some reason I thought they were all just going to be insects. Not to knock insects, but uh, or yeah, molds or uh, can't get enough of frogs. Yeah, yeah. little frogs ever. Cool, cool. Yeah, um, I, um, I also, by the way, that news bloopers are just a joy. There's no, they never stop being a joy. This is true. Oh my god, people falling while on remote. Oh. The yeah. wine stomping video is still maybe my favorite viral video of all time. Oh, it's so good. Wine stomping and also um, look at that horse. Look at that horse. Look at, <laughs> oh. look at that big bushy tail. Yeah. Uh, there's a great Twitter account called Accidental Partridge, which is all Alan Partridge uh, style things. Have the <laughs> British show happening in the real world. Um, and there's a lot of just treasures on there. That's awesome. We should. We've got a bit of time to get into a couple of stories, yeah, right? Yeah, do a few. Yeah. What do we got? Do you have any that you like? Uh, I've gotten some emails from um, the always reliable Justin Broad. Uh, speaking of astronomy, a uh, near-Earth asteroid passing us in December may actually be an old moon rocket. So astronomers have discovered a small object in space that will pass by Earth on the first of December, twenty twenty, by the small margin of just fifty thousand kilometers. Not only that, but our planet's gravity will change its trajectory so much that it will become a temporary moon of Earth. Here's the real kicker. The object is almost certainly not an asteroid. Instead, astronomers think it's actually a spent rocket booster from a robotic moon mission launched in 1966. The object, called 2020SO, was discovered in September 2020 by the Pan-STARRS telescope, which surveys the sky looking in part for near-Earth objects. It didn't take long to see that the object 
that the orbit was peculiar and that it was familiar. The size, shape, and geometry of it are uncannily close to that of Earth's orbit. It would be very unusual for an asteroid, but that's just what you expect for a rocket booster or space probe. So astronomers traced the orbit backwards and found something amazing. In September 1966, it was very close to the Earth. If it were an asteroid, that means it would have passed us just then. But if it were actually from a space mission then, that could have been the launch date. And as it happens, there was a spacecraft launched then, Surveyor 2, a mission to land a probe on the moon. In fact, it gets better. Surveyor 2 launched on the 20th of September, 1966, using an Atlas Centaur rocket. The Atlas first stage performed well, and the Centaur upper stage then boosted the spacecraft toward the moon. However, a mid-course correction made by Surveyor 2 went awry, or awry, uh, causing the spacecraft <laughs> to go in. That's well, a, that's a that's deep a, cut. Deep cut from the back. Uh, causing the spacecraft to go into a tumble that could not be recovered. It slammed into the moon days later at 10,000 kilometers per hour. But that second stage, the Centaur booster, kept going. It passed the moon and went into orbit around the sun. So 2020 SO, so could that be the Centaur rocket? It's very likely. Uh, the brightness of 2020 SO indicates it's something like 4 to 10 meters wide, and the Centaur is about 3 by 13 meters in size, so that fits. And there's a more subtle reason to think that they're one and the same, too. Careful measurements of the object's orbit show that it's being strongly affected by the pressure of sunlight, Photons from the sun hit the object and are reflected away, changing its momentum over time. This force slowly changes the orbit of an object, but it's more pronounced for less massive, so usually smaller objects. And a spent rocket booster is a big hollow tube, so this effect should be strong, just as astronomers have found. That's a cool way to figure it out. Wow. Yeah, so since 2020 SO's orbit is very much like the Earth's, when one overtakes the other, it happens relatively slowly, like two cars on a highway might both be going fast, but compared to each other they'll look like they're passing at a slow pace uh in november 2020 it passed into what's called earth's hill sphere the volume of space around earth where planet's planet's gravity dominates over the suns um that volume is about 1.5 million kilometers in radius uh and normally uh, an interplanetary object would pass right through but 2020 so is moving so slowly that it could be captured by earth for a short time It'll take about four months to make a single big loop around us. Then on its second pass, the gravity of the moon and Earth will give it just enough energy to escape again, once more becoming a satellite of the sun. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty I didn't cool. know photons could move things. Well, yeah, like uh, sun sails, that's a means yeah, of that's, getting stuff. Yeah. I still don't quite get it just from the fact that photons aren't supposed to have any mass, but um, we've talked well, about it before. And they I, have momentum. Right. <laughs> God, it makes no sense. But yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, momentum is mass times velocity, so they have momentum but no mass. <laughs> is that true, Matt? Well, hang on. That, no, it's not because phot- photons have energy, and energy is mass. R- so there's that, right? Right. As I they are the same thing. But yeah, it's easier to think of them in terms of them having momentum, and you know, a tiny amount of momentum per photon, and even per like stream of photons. But if you're in space and you have no other real forces acting on on something or at least you know there's gravity obviously but there's no air resistance so a photon hitting something can just accelerate it by a tiny amount and then a tiny amount more and a tiny amount more until it really picks up speed right right so this is pretty cool surveyor 2 is going to become temporary moon of ours I, i wonder how good of a telescope you'd have to get to see any detail of that yeah i want to be able to see whatever the nasa people back in the day had written on the side <laughs> so its orbital path is around the sun and us 
Well, it's going to come close enough to us to be temporarily affected by our gravity. And like, like I said, since we're both kind of moving together, its velocity relative to ours is going to be lower than its actual orbital velocity around the sun, so it can temporarily get sucked into our gravitational sphere. Great. And become, yeah, yeah, I'm on board. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if this is, let's see, how, so how close did it say it'll get? 15,000 kilometers? I don't know how to quickly do a calculation to see what that means about what, how good of a, uh, oh no, 50,000 kilometers. So I don't know how good of a telescope you'd have to have to, probably pretty damn good to see any detail. Um, do you guys want to get t-shirts made or? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Surveyor 2. <laughs> the reunion tour. Never yeah. forget. <laughs> 54 years later. Did they actually write stuff on the side? I, I know we've got some various rocket scientist people who are occasional listeners to the show. Uh, does, ev- do- does, every, does everything in the 60s and 70s have like a gold record on the side? Yeah. And just-, just Voyager. <laughs> And just something written like "fuck you, moon." Right. Just <laughs> space taunts. <laughs> yeah, just, this is from Earth, you moon bitch. <laughs> it's just oh, why did you write that? It's very misogynistic. Yeah, it was a different time back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, yeah. The, the earlier ones were pinups. Uh, oh yeah, but, you got to paint the nose cone mm-hmm. like a. That's right. Sultry uh, Andrew Sisters singer. From the <laughs> And whoever's sitting on the rocket just has like a little folded up black and white photo stuffed into their inside jacket. That's right. (laughs) Actually, you know, all kidding aside, I'm surprised with all the privatization of space flight that that rockets don't look like NASCAR cars. Like what's to stop people from just plastering them with sponsors and paying for the mission that way? That will probably be a thing. Why not? I can't think of any reason why that would not be a thing that happens. By the way, while we're looking at space stuff, I was looking at the BBC News Science page, and a dog kennel-shaped satellite has just blasted off on an ocean mission. Wait, Sentinel-6. Dog yeah. kennel-shaped? Yes, dog kennel satellite. I presume it's because of the shape of it, at least. I haven't got into the article yet, and not that there is a dog inside it. I think they, <laughs> they stopped, stopped doing that. that. Yeah. yeah, that was a few decades oh. back. Unless they just haven't been telling us and every rocket still has a dog in it. Oh. <laughs> just like, look, just why mess with the winning formula? We know it works. Yeah. So oh, I, a... <laughs> I, can see, I can see the picture of it. It's, it's pretty doghousey. Yeah. Yeah. A satellite that would be critical to the understanding of climate change has blasted skywards. It does look pretty doghousey. It looks... Mm-hmm. To We'll link to it in the show notes, but for those people who aren't clicking on it, it looks like... You know the sort of dog houses that are just like a, almost like a single story, a Snoopy dog shrub. house. Yeah, so it's the one Snoopy, Snoopy lies on the top of. Yeah, with just a sort of flat, um, slope down, uh, roof on either side. Right, right. And but in this case, covered in solar panels, and Rut doesn't have Snoopy sitting on top of it yet, or, or lying on top of it. So it was- it's going to. It's going to measure the shape of the world's oceans. It'll track sea level rise and also how the great mass of water is moving around the globe. Wow. Okay. A little smart. Is there a reason for the shape, though? It's even got a little dog tongue. (laughs) Kind of does, yeah. (laughs) I I don't know why it is that shape. Yeah. It doesn't say it in the article. Huh. If you have worked on a a dog kennel or uh, dog house-shaped satellite and, and know why that shape is what it is 
email probablyscience at gmail.com. There's been, a, th- there's been a lot of cool mapping stuff. There's also a project that's just happened that's mapping all of the bees. <laughs> what does that entail? I, I don't know. It's the first global map of bees created in a conservation first. I heard a story about this on the radio as well two days ago, and now it's here on the BBC News webpage. Because, you know, we've got bee missing problems, but scientists have mapped the distribution of all 20,000 bee species on Earth. The new global map of bees will help in the conservation of the insects we rely on to pollinate our crops, say researchers Mm. in Singapore and China. Bee populations are facing pressure from habitat loss and the use of pesticides. Yet little is known about the array of species living on every continent, save Antarctica, ranging from the tiny stingless bees to bees the size of a human thumb. Bees provide, yeah. Ugh. bees provide essential services to our ecosystems and are the major pollinators of many of our staple foods, says Dr. Alice Hughes of the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Yunnan. Uh, Yunnan? I presume, like, Y-U-N-N-A-N. I wasn't just saying, like, in Yunnan. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, where do you work? In Yunnan? All right. Uh... <laughs> All right now, come on. This is a place of science. Yet until now, we have not had the data to show where the, on the planet most species are. She said, here we combine millions of records to create the first map of glo- maps of global bee richness and understand why we see these patterns. These maps and our framework can then form the basis of future work, enabling us to better understand patterns of bee richness. Again, like that's the phrase bee richness, richness. twice, and it doesn't stop being mm-hmm. weird. It's and great. ensure that they are effectively conserved into the future. And but I'm just going to click on this other like, sub link off there, which says the world's biggest bee found alive. I wasn't aware I'm, that it was missing. The I'm looking at this. Look, the, the Lord, look at that thing. So some bee populations, such as bumblebees in Europe and North America, are well studied. But in other regions, such as large parts of Asia and Africa, documentation has been sparse. While there remains a lot to learn about what drives bee diversity, the research team hopes their work will help in the conservation of bees as global pollinators. Dr. John Asher of the National University of Singapore said by establishing a reliable baseline, we can characterize bee declines and distinguish areas less suitable for bee, uh, bees from areas where bees should thrive but have been reduced by threats such as pesticides, loss of natural habitat, and overgrazing. Mm. And this is sort of links into what you were talking about earlier on. There are over 16,000 known bee species in seven recognized families. Some species, such as honeybees, bumblebees, and stingless bees, live in colonies, while others are solitary. Although some there are groups... solitary bees, I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't know. Just doing their own thing, traveling from town to town, being bees. It's just like uh, kung fu or Incredible Hulk style <laughs> yeah. with the backpack. Yeah. You've obviously not seen the Blind Melon video. <laughs> oh, that's true. Very, very solitary bee girl. Yeah. Why won't they hang out with her? <laughs> God. Although some groups, um, such as bumblebees, are well studied, the vast majority, more than 96% of bee species, are poorly documented. And many crops, especially in developing countries, rely on native bee species, not honeybees. Hmm. So to create their map, they compared data about the occurrence of individual bee species with a checklist of over 20,000 species compiled by Dr. Asher, which gave a clearer picture of how the many species of bees are distributed around the world. The more you say bees, the weirder it sounds. By yeah, the way. yeah. <laughs> it's just like Stop, this. starts to lose its meaning. Yeah. <laughs> but bees, bees are just a funny word. They just are. It's, it's 
bees. Bees. Uh, bee richness bees. is. Uh, we should start selling bee richness merchandise. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a bee richness T-shirt. <laughs> this area is just full of bee richness. <laughs> I'm being stung what? quite heavily right now. By the way, do you guys use Apple Bees Maps? Because I kind of prefer Bees Ways. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just gets me a little faster. <laughs> The study has confirmed that unlike other creatures such as birds and mammals, more bee species are found in dry, temperate areas around the poles, sorry, away from the poles, than in drop, tropical areas near the equators. There are more in northern hemisphere in the, the northern hemisphere than the southern, with hotspots in parts of the US, Africa, and the Middle East. There are far fewer bee species in forests and jungles than in desert environments because trees tend to provide fewer sources of food for bees than plants and flowers. There have been signs up in Joshua Tree National Park near where I'm living now uh, all summer about the danger of bee, not not necessarily danger, but just be be aware uh, that uh, when you come into the park, bees will probably swarm your car because they uh, they're going after the um, condensation around your engine around your air conditioner unit. I don't know. That's oh, wow. there's so little moisture in the park that what what little moisture there is to be found on or in your car might attract a bunch of bees. And I was, I was in there, uh, I've taken up rock climbing recently with a buddy of mine who moved out here. And uh, I guess we were the only thing that were kind of wet in, in, <laughs> in any kind of proximity to some bees. So the two of us are standing by this rock face and I'm trying to belay him while bees are swarming my sweaty ankles. And one has gotten into wow. my, actually got into my shoe, but with my hands, I have to be keeping my friend from dying by uh, keeping this rope taut in the belay device, but also trying to figure out how to get a bee out of my shoe <laughs> without <laughs> squishing it and forcing it to sting me and making me drop him to his death. So I'm not a fan of those bees. I don't If there's a way we can stop bees from loving ankles. Yeah, shoe bees are. Yeah, shoe bee doo Shoe bee God, so many merch ideas in just this last couple minutes. Yeah. Bee richness, shooby doobs. More Scoobies, less Shoobies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Do we have another story you want to do before wrap things up here? Well, you, you know what? We, we last last week we talked about some of the election mathematics, and oh, I did. Yes. And I did miss one other story that I just read and forgot to bring it up on the show. And I know we've already done some sort of mathematics and math- statistical analysis when we would deep into the Jeopardy stuff. Before you do that real quick, I forgot. Also, Radiolab covered Benford's Law and how it related to the election also this last week. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but sorry, go ahead. Um, so, yeah, we talked about that, but there was also... So there's been bunches... There's been a large number of things that have gone viral from the conspiracy theory angled uh, right-leaning people online without much... Let, let's just say without much justification or necessarily academic credentials behind it there's just you know you can publish a few graphs and a few catchphrases like uh logarithmic and so on and statistical regression and it sounds like you know what you're talking about so there was a long twitter thread that went very viral a week or so ago that was analyzing the progression of votes that came in in various states that was using the data that was they'd got hold of the data that gets given straight to the new york times so you know when the new york times is publishing their little Fake graph news. Of, oh yeah yeah. Well, yeah as they're publishing the graph of as the votes come in and the graph increases and so on and the votes get tallied 
they had access to that raw data. So then this person did statistical analysis of it and published like a log log graph of this as it came in. And it had these crazy jumps in it, which they were using as justification for this is when some things happen. There's been ballot stuffing. Uh, and they were like, these are all the postal votes coming in. All the postal votes are mixed together. That's why they're coming in at the same ratio of Biden versus Trump. And then every so often there's a sudden jump and it's dodgy. And, it, you know, that's why some dodginess has happened. And it looks, you know, you read the thread and you go, well, well there's some reasonable sounding statistical phrases in there. It sounds like you know what you're talking about. And this looks dodgy as all hell. And what's what actually is going on in here? And I'm going to link to this in the show notes because a an actuary called uh i don't know what his actual name is but i presume he i uh, i he doesn't have his pronouns listed but he looks pretty he and his uh twitter handle is cv underscore miller underscore and is an actuary and has published a pretty accurate uh description of what actually happened it's a rounding error the fuckwits have just made a rounding error here's what they've done and this is this is a remarkable piece of statistical fuckwittery so they claimed that they had the actual raw numbers of every vote that was coming in for, for Biden or for Trump. And so they were able to exactly project a graph of what was going on and see the jumps. They didn't. They don't have those numbers at all. What was actually in the New York Times data stream that they got hold of is the exact number for the total number of votes that were coming in. Uh which goes into the hundreds of thousands and then into the millions. And then the next two columns are the percentage of those votes that are Biden and the percentage of the votes that are Trump rounded to one decimal place. Oh, that's a pretty oh, big wow. difference. That's a pr- in so yeah, you've got like a figures. six or seven figure number and yeah. they are just working out the raw numbers for the Trump and the raw numbers for the Biden votes by just multiplying this number that's in the millions by... 34.1% and just yeah. going well this is the exact number of Trump votes now at this moment and this is the exact number of Biden votes so there's not and then they're plotting them on a graph and and bizarrely you know who would have thought the ratio of Biden to Trump stays extremely constant so the graph is straight until every so often a big load of votes come in from a democrat heavy area which is enough to kick it up a percentage point or at least a decimal percentage point and so suddenly the graph jumps by a significant amount. Right, because you're comparing <laughs> three significant figures to seven. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You're multiplying a seven significant figure number by a three significant figure number and assuming that you're getting a seven significant figure accuracy out of it. That's hilarious. Hmm. So there you go. There's a little bit of... Uh, I'll put a link to that for people who want to get deep into the numbers there because he has broken it down very accurately and published what's actually going on for... You know, what a, what a little treat for anyone who likes getting into the weeds with numbers and looking at stuff and just going like, well, something's wrong. Something's it seems like definitely it, wrong here. Every one of these election attempts at proving election malfeasance with math, it, it's there's so many parallels to flat earthers. Like, well, what about this? Like, well, there's actually an answer to that. Here's that answer. Right. <laughs> yeah, I see. It, it's it's uh, gish galloping, isn't it? That's the what is the, that? The expression that was coined so. Dwayne Gish, I think was his name. He was one of the first really prominent creationists who, like one of the first guys who would sort of debate scientists around the country and around the world. And his biggest technique, which was dubbed the Gish Gallop by a skeptic whose name I now can't remember, is to just fire 
fact after fact after fact. None of these are actually facts. Not facts. Ideas, that, proposals after proposals. Yeah, exactly. He goes, what about this? What about this fossil? Well, how would this be like this? And every single one of them has an answer. Every single one of them has a refutation. But you fire so many at this person in one go that all you're doing is just sort of batting away. You know, he's onto like the third one when you're still trying to debunk the first one. And it just right. sort of overwhelms the audience and overwhelms the person he's debating with the this nonsense that that you know you you can't even put your case forward because you're too busy just refuting the seven facts ago that he just threw at you. Yeah, it was, they're all very refutable, but they all take more effort to refute than they did to uh, yeah. to fl- fly at you. The, <laughs> the easiest refutation, I think, of any of the things that are being claimed about the election results is that whenever the actual lawyers for Trump and the Republicans have got into court, none of those accusations have been brought up because they know that if they actually bring them up in court, that's perjury. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, if you look at the actual court cases, like they go on Fox News or they go on Twitter and go like, uh, this is fraud. This is a fraudulent thing. Someone has got into the voting machines and changed these numbers. Uh, Our observers were banned from the counting rooms and then they get into court and they're like we're not allegating we're not alleging fraud we are just saying that there we you know we need to count all of these votes and we should wait to to... (laughs) just like and no we're not saying that anyone has actually physically meddled with the machines we're just saying those machines can have inaccuracies and we need to we need to re-audit them and tally them and everything it's like because they know that when it like the actual lawyers in open court can't make the same allegations that they can make in a TV interview. Yeah, yeah. My great. favorite was um, they uh, they had, uh, they were alleging that their um, observers were not allowed in the room, but they were. So the, the the judge said, so there were observers allowed in the room, and he said there was a non-zero number of people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's quite a joy. It, like I I got very deep into election debunking statistics and probability the other day do we have time to do one lo- one last little extra story sure yeah do you have a good one L- let's do let's do this little story because i also like the framing in the email that was sent in by alan williams who said hi guys while everyone is busy scrambling to sell a vaccine australian researchers are looking to get rich in other ways and uh it is a we we should talk about vaccines at some point, maybe in a future episode, because there is some exciting stuff going on in there. And also, our buddy Jesse Case, former host of the show, is working in a vaccine lab right now. And isn't that also where I, I just got off the top of my head? But I know that Jad Abumrad from Radio Lab did that podcast with Dolly Parton. His dad's a virologist, also at Vanderbilt, and that somehow got Dolly involved in funding what might be the vaccine so i didn't know that's how it came about but i thought so yeah i I could have the order wrong but i think vanderbilt um is is uh very at the center of things as as is dolly parton but i could could be wrong about that and jesse is at the center of vanderbilt jesse and dolly parton are finally teaming up to make vaccines to save the world (laughs) so this is diamonds that have been created at room temperature in minutes by scientists Hmm. so i mean i mean cubic zirconia right Nope. Straight up diamonds. Well, so, that's what you can't call. Okay, go ahead. So here we go. Uh, oh, God, this opening sentence in this CNN article. <clears throat> Brace yourselves, team. Diamonds might be forever, but that doesn't mean they have to take eons to form. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
The gemstones are usually created after carbon is crushed and heated far beneath the Earth's surface over billions of years, which is what makes them so coveted. Now, scientists in Australia say they have sped up the process into just a matter of minutes and at room temperature. An international team of researchers led by the Australian National University and RMIT University in Melbourne said on Wednesday they have created two types of diamonds at room temperature by using high pressure equivalent to, and again, Alan did mention this specific analogy as the reason he sent in the story, equivalent to 640 African elephants balancing on the tip of a ballet shoe. Wow. I'm guessing they actually used machinery instead, though. I don't know. <laughs> we sure. should probably check. We should have yeah, asked those. Yeah. In, in many ways, that would be a more remarkable aspect to the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists have worked out how to get 640 elephants into one room. And the, one shoe, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> into a single shoe. The researchers say they were able to create two types of structurally distinct diamonds, one similar to those typically worn in jewellery, and another type called... Lonsdalite, which is found naturally at the site of meteorite impacts and is harder than most diamonds. I did not know that. Oh, damn. How even is it harder? Like, because the, the structure of diamonds alone are just just pure carbon in a tetrahedron. It's just like there is no break. It's a link. harder tetrahedron, Matt. Yeah, mm-hmm. like what what is involved in them that makes it an even more hard structure? Uh... Synthetic diamonds are not themselves new and have been already created in labs since the 40s in a bid to find cheaper, ethically, ethical and environmentally friendly stones. I think they're mostly synthetic diamonds used in uh, industrial processes, aren't they? Right, like record needles and cutting tools. Oh. And, yeah, yeah. But researchers... I don't know they use record needle diamonds. Aren't record needles made of synthetic diamonds? Good ones? I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe. I didn't think... I thought they were... Anyway. Right in, listeners. But researchers <laughs> were excited to create such diamonds at room temperature, especially the harder Lonsdalite diamond, which has the potential to be used to cut through ultra-solid materials of mining sites, they said. Creating more of this rare but super-useful diamond is the long-term aim of this work. This is according to Xinxiu Huang, who is a scholar working on the project. Being able to make two types of diamonds at room temperature was exciting to achieve for the first time in our lab. So lab-grown diamonds are usually created by carbon being subjected to intense heat but to form the diamonds researchers applied immense pressure to create a twisting or sliding force that they believe caused the carbon atoms to move into place it's according to jody bradbury who's a physics professor at anu nat she said natural diamonds are usually formed over billions of years about 150 kilometers it's about 93 miles deep into the earth where there are high pressures and temperatures above a thousand degrees c that's 18 uh, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. The twist in this story is how we apply the pressure. So Douglas McCulloch, who's a physics professor at RMIT who co-led the research and his team, then used advanced electron microscopy techniques to take slices from the experimental samples to better understand how they were formed. When they studied it, they found veins of both regular and Lonsdalite diamonds running through. McCulloch said seeing these little rivers of Lonsdalite and regular diamonds the first time was just amazing and really helps us understand how they might form. Researchers at the University of Sydney and Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee were also involved in the research. Pretty cool. Now we've got a much more affordable way to bejewel the uh, Jeopardy crown that Charlie now wears. (laughs) (laughs) And yours is four times as big. (laughs) We need some cheap jewels. That's a lot of crown weight. 
Yeah. Uh, but also, do you, is your does your not number not count for like the number of everyone the the number of the person you vanquished? Is it not conquers rules? Oh, like you oh. you keep just piling on more and more crowns of all the prior uh, yeah. the, the the bodies of your the corpses of your enemies. Also, how how did his blood taste when you drank it? <laughs> well, you, you know that we only drink infants' bloods because because we work in Hollywood and uh, yeah. that's what sustains us. And yeah, I drink adrenochrome right. uh, pretty regularly. It's, it's delicious. Now, does, does that help yeah. with your buzzer speed? Oh yeah, hundred percent. That's probably why he had he had a second shot of it at lunch. Not mine, mine yeah, for breakfast is wearing off because you're on the fifth yeah. episode of the day by that point. Yeah. it's really. Stock up on the adrenochrome if you're going to be on Jeopardy, guys. Take a that's, that's right. the only possible way. <laughs> have it way. on the podium. Have a little straw. Top yeah. up in the ad breaks. Yeah, I remember we had so much cheese pizza during that lunch break. Remember that cheese pizza? <laughs> wink, wink. Y- yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, God, we're giving too much away. This is too much inside information. Yeah, you um, had to, you, I thought you had to sign NDAs and everything. The first rule so, of Q right. is... That's right. Charlie, we should wrap this up, but where can our listeners find out more about you and everything that you work on? Um, my website is not-pictured.com, uh, where you can see all my business. Um, and my Twitter is uh, and Instagram are uh, at Charlie Fonville. No, no uh, punctuation. And uh, and your podcast? My podcast is called Unremembered Hollywood, uh, and it's unrememberedhollywood.com. And, and all available presumably things. on all the different podcast platforms? Every single one of them. So, yeah, you've got your podcast app open in front of you right now if you're listening to this. Why not nip over to that? And, yeah. and also, that uh, subscribe button. if you're listening to this before Monday the 23rd, uh, tune in on Monday the 23rd to see um, current champion Charlie Fonville on Jeopardy. That's right. Yeah, that so. is on ABC at 7 p.m. in our time zone, but apparently at different it, times and different time it, zones. There's no point in even trying to tell anybody when it's on. It's you'd be it's on at 4 p.m. in some places. It's well, uh, yeah, I noticed it's just, on at 11:30 in Houston <laughs> in the morning. Well, that, that's why I noticed that the subreddit, the recap of the episode, goes up like was already up by mid-afternoon. Yeah, yeah. So probably you, know, you have yeah. to not click on it if you don't want spoilers because if you go to the Jeopardy website, it'll there's a station finder oh yes do that do that we will link to that in the show notes but yeah do that uh, as always you can find us at probablyscience.com you can find us on twitter at probablyscience individually at andy t wood and at matt kershen probablyscience at gmail.com is the email address for any questions comments clarifications and stories you'd like us to cover also probablyscience.com is where the patreon and paypal donation links are thank you very much to all of the people who help us keep this thing going yes. and listeners thanks for new listeners who've come from jeopardy i hope uh, you stick around and andy and charlie congratulations both of you it's I, i'm looking forward to seeing your next episode charlie and it's been a joy watching both of you do it thanks yeah so thanks much. so much for having me guys yeah. and uh be sure to tune in to spike tv uh 9 p.m on fridays <laughs> to watch, to watch the fourth series of the hit show defamed uh... <laughs> If only. <laughs> we're, we are, we're deep into syndication now. We're five seasons, a hundred episodes deep. A feature film coming next. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, guys, thanks so much for having me. This has been a blast. Thank uh, you, Charlie. Thanks a, for, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah. And listeners, see you next time. Bye. Bye.